Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 9, The Phoenicians. To introduce our story this week, we need to go back to the late Bronze Age collapse. Now, we are aware that many of the empires of the Near East suffered during the 10th century BCE. Some historians like to apportion some of the blame for this on sea peoples, because sea peoples are the collective name for those invaders of these mighty empires particularly Egypt. New kingdoms emerged, not least of all, on the Mediterranean coasts, and some of them, such as the Philistines, had cultural connections with older cultures such as the Mycenaeans, which suggest some kind of displacement of peoples going on. When it comes to pinpointing the origins of the Phoenicians, there isn't really much to go on. We are not really sure exactly who they are and we are not really sure if they have one origin. The land of the Phoenicians before the late Bronze Age collapse was predominantly run by the Egyptians. However, the Egyptians lost all of their Levantine lands at the end of the 13th century BCE and the whole of the Levant appears to have fragmented into self-sufficient city-states. Antaridos is an ancient city-state which corresponds to the modern city of Tartus, which is a coastal city of modern Syria. So therefore it faces out into the Mediterranean. Its name Antaridos is derived from anti, which means opposite or facing, and aridus corresponds to the Greek name for the small Mediterranean island of Arwad, which also belongs to Syria. This was an active area of the Levant in ancient times and Greek-style sarcophagi. This could indicate a historical trade relationship with the Greeks, or it could be that the Greek peoples migrated to this area, as we suspect may have been the origin of the Philistines. Travelling south down the Mediterranean coast and into the modern day country of Lebanon, we can discover the city of Byblos, which is one of the oldest continuously inhabited places in the world. The Mediterranean coastline was very fertile and very popular. It was a crossroads of trade and culture which accounts for such long periods of occupation right back to the origins of mankind. Two other settlements, which we know were important city-states in the aftermath of the late Bronze Age collapse, are Sidon and Tyre, both of which still exist on the Mediterranean coast of southern Lebanon. 
So we now have a sense of the geographical area of the beginning of our story. Over history, this region has been conquered by many great empires. The Phoenicians, however, were unknown before they populated this area. There was no known great battle or migration. So the question is, how can we distinguish who the Phoenicians are? The one thing we find is that a lot of the reference to this period comes from Greek scholars. So the names such as Phoenicia, Antaridos and Byblos are Greek in origin. Locally, Byblos is known as Jabir. Antaridos, we have already explained, has etymological Greek origins. The Phoenicians referred to their homeland as Kunun, which is likely to be etymologically connected to the biblical name for the Levant, Canaan. The Phoenicians would write this using their own alphabet. Phoenician alphabet. So far we have really only referred to the cuneiform writing system that appeared to emerge in Sumer and was inherited by the Semitic-speaking Akkadians whose language would survive throughout the existence of the Assyrian Empire. The Phoenicians are also believed to have spoken a Semitic language but they developed their own alphabet and it is this alphabet that helps us to distinguish the Phoenicians culturally. Experts in this field cite the origins of the Phoenician alphabet coming from Egyptian hieroglyphs. However, there appears to be a bridge between Egyptian hieroglyphs and the Phoenician alphabet in the Sinaitic scripts of the mid-2nd millennium BCE. So this points towards a migration of culture, which isn't out of the question because Egyptians subjugated the Canaanites during this period, as we covered in the last two podcasts. The fact that we see an alphabetic remnant may point towards the Phoenicians emerging as confederation of the city-states of the Levant. The fact that the Greeks have totally distinct names for all of the Phoenician settlements and even for the Phoenician people themselves points towards the fact that the Phoenicians were probably not migrating Greeks, something that we speculated could be the case for the Philistines. Now we are going to devote some future podcasts to the emergence of writing so I'm not going to get too bogged down on the alphabetic stuff this week but it is relevant to consider this when we look at the progress of a culture. The Phoenician alphabet is a very important milestone of writing development though as many modern alphabets are believed to have derived from it. Modern Arabic and Hebrew are thought to be descendant scripts as well as Greek and Latin. It seems strange to think that Arabic and Latin scripts originated from a common 3,000-year-old ancestor, the Phoenician alphabet. But when you look at how different they appear today. One of the best examples of this alphabet comes from the Phoenician city of Byblos, which we mentioned earlier. And the sarcophagus of a Phoenician king inscribed 
with old Phoenician letters. And the sarcophagus dates back to around 1000 BCE, which incidentally was a very important time for the development of these peoples. Expansion Certainly the Phoenicians had a relevant relationship with the island of Cyprus quite early on. Cyprus does appear to have always been an interesting island, right back to the Neolithic where there is evidence of early Neolithic societies travelling across the waters, Cyprus must have always been rich in resource, not least of all copper, and it must have been a very familiar place to all of the trading cultures and peoples over the thousands of years leading up to this point. So despite being an island, it was very much in touch with the Neolithic culture, with agriculture and farming becoming the standard way of life. Large settlements emerged during the early Bronze Age and the Mycenaean Greeks in particular showed an interest in developing trade settlements on the island. We did establish that there was a Hittite invasion in around 1200 BCE but soon after this the Mycenaean and Hittite empires weakened and disappeared during the late Bronze Age collapse. Although historians have traditionally suggested that it was the 8th century BCE that the Phoenicians significantly settled Cyprus, there is evidence of a connection to Canaanite culture, particularly with burial sites which date back two to 300 years previous. However, there is still a strong Greek presence. It is through their contact with Greeks that we get the name Phoenicia, and this may be related to the purple-coloured dye that these peoples traded, although the strict etymology is quite ambiguous, but we do see ancient texts linking the names Canaan to Phoenicia. So we may also be able to assume that these people had been long-term residents of the Levant before they began to flourish during and after the late Bronze Age collapse. Hexaplex trunculus is the binomial name of the Murex sea snail, a species that can be found on all the Mediterranean coastlines. And this could be very well thanks to the activity of the Phoenicians. This particular sea snail is well known for secreting a mucus, which is a very distinct purple-blue indigo colour, which could be used as a dye and was very, very popular. It was so popular that this is the reason why the Phoenicians are called the Phoenicians, as it was the Greek name for this purple colour. Another product which the Phoenicians would be able to exploit in abundance thanks to their geographical location was the cedar wood of the mountain forests of Canaan. It would be these cedar woods that would become the source of their ship building material and the Phoenicians would become expert shipbuilders. Their aim was to trade and the Mediterranean Sea which must have been like the waters of possibilities extending far out from the shores of their lands would become their pathway to fortune. However they certainly were not the only peoples looking to build trade networks throughout the lands of the Mediterranean and as such they would need to be able to build 
a variety of ships. Some would be small, multi-oared rowing boats, whereas others would be warships, armed with defensive shields to help stave off any aggression from rival seafaring traders. The Phoenicians would basically have pole position, be at the point where the Near East empires meet the Mediterranean trading seamen. The key to the success of the Phoenicians was their ability to manufacture and trade. Fabrics coloured in the attractive murex purple and cedar wood from the mountain forests would have been loaded onto the large Phoenician boats ready to be sold to anyone who would be attracted. The Mediterranean trade rivals of the Phoenicians were the Greeks and both sets of peoples were looking to explore the riches of the varying Mediterranean coasts to find goods which could be passed on at a price. However, it does appear that although the two peoples were trade rivals, there was also a trade interest between the two. The purple fabrics, which earned the Phoenicians their Greek name, and the cedar wood were exchanged for Greek ceramic ware, such as pots and vases. This was not all, however, and the Greeks would also trade bronzes that were from Magna Grecia. Magna Grecia was the name of the southernmost tip of the Italian peninsula and the accompanying Sicilian island that we are familiar with today. Also, being the masters of the sea, it is not surprising to find Greek peoples on the Italian peninsula, especially as the Greeks were looking to increase their trading influence throughout the Mediterranean. The Phoenicians were able to acquire these bronzes and move on to other coastal places. Not far from Magna Grecia is an African coastline as the Mediterranean narrows at its centre. It would be here that the Phoenicians would do something very significant in the year 814 BCE. Trade The Phoenicians would land on the North African coastline and created a trade post on the coast which became a rapidly growing settlement. There would have been some annoyed displaced North African Berbers to contend with who would have taken exception to these foreigners settling their indigenous lands. However, the Phoenicians were successful in achieving this and the settlement of Carthage was born in what would become the Tunis governorate of the modern country of Tunisia. In fact, with all the wares that the Phoenicians brought to the African lands, it may have been enough to appease many of the indigenous Berbers. They may have done this with the beautiful Phoenician purple cloths, metals from the lands of the East Mediterranean and quality cedar wood from the Lebanon mountains. They would have been carrying ceramics that had been traded with the expert Greeks who would have been one of the first peoples that the Phoenicians had a most very likely historical trade relationship with both across land and sea. Although we have more recent evidence of glass production dating way back before the Phoenicians with the emergence of Egyptian faience and accidentally produced glass-like slag in prehistoric crucibles, the Phoenicians were the experts when it came to the production of glass items and this points us towards Phoenicians being regarded in the ancient world as a hub 
of manufacturing expertise and the land of the artisan. Herodotus is an ancient Greek who lived in the 5th century BCE and has been retrospectively called the father of history. He is well known for his extensive historical narratives that we can refer to and his work for clues about what has been going on in ancient times. Herodotus refers to a geographical place called the Pillars of Hercules and this is used to reference the raised lands of Morocco and Gibraltar which sit either side of the Strait of Gibraltar and represent a gateway from the familiarity of the Mediterranean Sea and the mysterious waters of the end of the world which we call the Atlantic Ocean. No one dared to travel beyond the pillars of Hercules, apart from, according to Herodotus, the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians would find the luxury of gold along the Atlantic coastline of West Africa and would have had plenty in terms of ceramics and glass, jewellery and trinkets, wood and cloths that would have encouraged the West Africans to trade their gold. They were also able to acquire tin from the coasts of the British Isles and with those same trade abilities. So much as we think of the Phoenicians as the dominant trading people of the Mediterranean, the evidence tells us that their trade network was so much larger than that. Possibly on their way back into the Mediterranean, they would have stopped at a trading settlement that was rich in iron and had long been established by the Phoenicians and which is called today Cardis. The peoples of Cardis were very interested in the African gold, so the trade relationship was healthy and the travelling Phoenicians were an excellent media between the coastal lands and cities. Some claim that the Phoenicians had the skill to circumnavigate the entire continent of Africa and it was something that Herodotus wrote about but even cast his own doubts on. Would the boats of the Phoenicians, even with their dual ability to sail or be rowed, have been able to conquer the rough seas of the ocean facing coasts of Africa? We may never truly know, but it is a fascinating question. Please write in if you have any further information. All of this successful and diverse trade would have served to make Carthage a thriving colony with a huge population. And this is just as well because things have just started to change in the Phoenician homelands. Phoenicia We mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that the Phoenician people emerged as members of city-states of the coast of the Levant and much like other ancient peoples, the city-states pretty much looked after their own affairs. There was no evidence of there being a Phoenician nation-state, just a cultural similarity between neighbouring city-states. We believe that although Byblos was the dominant city of this area from the 3rd millennium BCE that it was the expertise of the people of Tyre who founded many of the Phoenician trade colonies and it was because of this that Tyre would become a stronger city of influence overtaking Byblos 
as the main city by around 900 BCE. Certainly, we can attribute the foundation of places such as Cardis and Carthage as being the work of the people of Tyre, rather than Phoenicians in general. Certainly, we know from the previous podcasts that this area came under the influence of the mighty Assyrian Empire when it was at its heights during the 8th and 7th centuries BCE. But it does appear that the Phoenician trade abilities and artisanry were somewhat respected and protected as everyone benefited from their networking and their expertise in their many different fields. This would continue after the fall of the Assyrian Empire to the Babylonians at the end of the 7th century BCE. It was after this and at the fall of the Babylonian Empire to the Achaemenid Persian Empire under their king Cyrus the Great that the identity of Phoenicia and its people the Phoenicians seemed to disappear from history and just simply become land of the vast Achaemenid Empire. The date that is attributed to the end of Phoenicia is 539 BCE. However, thanks to the trading colonies that had been previously established, such as Carthage, and such was the wealth and success of this particular colony, that we have the ability to continue the story of the Phoenicians. Ancestrally, from the Levant, and now the bloodlines continue through to the Carthaginians of North Africa. And we're going to spend the rest of the podcast in the classical world exploring the story of the Carthaginians. Ancient Carthage Even though the Phoenicians had been pushed out of Phoenicia, there were now many settlements from Tripolitania in the east, which is a region of the modern country of Libya, along the coast through Carthage, beyond the Strait of Gibraltar to Tingis, which is modern Tangier in Morocco, and then onto Mogador, which is the modern Moroccan city of Essaouira in the far African west. Possibly this particular venture was achieved by a character called Hanno the Navigator, according to a Greek manuscript. However, there were also settlements on the northern coastline, such as Cardis, which we have already mentioned, which is in a modern-day country of Spain, the Balearic Islands, Corsica and Sardinia, and also Sicily. I would also strongly encourage you to visit the History of the World podcast website to visually place all of these places on the map. Ancient Carthage itself was developed into a modern harbour where merchant ships could enter and dock. And then beyond that, any military ships would be able to venture deeper into the harbour to an area of military strategy and repair and construction. The remnants of this setup are still visible today as two distinctly shaped and connected areas of water that are now part of the wider area of Tunis, the capital city of Tunisia. In the north of the Italian peninsula, particularly on its western coast, another culture was emerging called the Etruscans, which would be a part of the whole Mediterranean trade network and subsequently become more and more orientalised over time. When we say 
orientalized, we mean that it was influenced by the wealth of the East, particularly the cultures of the Near East, and this process was undoubtedly being moved forward by the trading Phoenicians and the trading Greeks. Much like the Phoenicians and many other civilizations, the Greeks were just a confederation of city-states who confederated only when it suited them. One such Greek city-state was based on the western Anatolian coast and was called Phocaea, which is the modern Turkish town of Foca. These Phocaean Greeks would set up colonies such as Alalia on the island of Corsica and also the trade colony of Massalia, which we know as the modern French city of Marseille. Ironically, the Phocaeans were forced away from their homeland in the 6th century BCE by those same people who ran the Phoenicians out of Phoenicia, the Achaemenid Persians. Other Greek immigrants to the South Italian peninsula and the island of Sicily were quite helpful to the migrating Phocaeans, allowing them to use the Strait of Messina to reach Alalia on Corsica, which could provide a stable location to re-establish their home within good distance of Massalia and those valuable tin imports from northwest Europe. By this time, the Carthaginians had already had issues with those Greeks who had set up trade colonies in Sicily and threatened existence and prosperity of their own trade colonies. So tensions between the Carthaginians and the Greeks were already quite high. The Etruscans were not too happy about the migration of more Greeks to the area either, fearing that it would encroach on their own interests. So the Carthaginians and the Etruscans linked up to create a fleet of around 120 Pentecontas, which were sea vessels containing 50 oarsmen each, hence the name Pentaconta. The aim for the Allied fleet was to prevent the Phocaean Greeks from reaching Alalia and settling. The Phocaean Greeks only had 60 Pentecontas, but they were still able to successfully drive away the Allied fleet A fantastic victory, or was it? In what would be known as the Battle of Alalia, the Phocaean Greeks had driven the Allies away, but they lost around two-thirds of their own fleet in the process. So even though the Phocaeans were victorious, it was an absolute disaster for them. No longer did they have the numbers to be able to set up a defendable colony on the island of Corsica. It would actually be the defeated Etruscans who would ultimately colonise Corsica, thanks to their close homeland proximity. The Carthaginians lost nothing, still having all of their colonies on Sardinia. It was a very hollow victory indeed for the Phocaeans. The Sicilian Wars We now enter the late 6th century BCE and tensions are high between rival trading peoples of the Mediterranean, particularly around the islands surrounding the Tyrrhenian Sea, namely Corsica, Sardinia and Sicily. The rulers of the Greek Sicilian trade colonies 
became ever more aggressive in their ambitions, being described in many texts as tyrannical. By the beginning of the 5th century BCE, Sicily was split in half, with Carthaginians on the west of the island and Greeks in the east. The Sicilian Wars had begun initially with native Sicilians reaching out to the Carthaginians for help to fend off the tyrannical Greek invaders. The Carthaginians did not have the power to push the Greeks back, but they were able to prevent them from taking over the entire island. The Carthaginians realised that the Greeks were too strong to be expelled from Sicily and instead chose to concentrate on other affairs. However, a lot later on in the 5th century BCE, it became clear that the Greeks were pushing further west and were threatening the existence of the West Sicilian city of Segesta. This prompted the Carthaginians to militarily become involved in Sicilian affairs again in order to save their presence there and they landed in around 410 BCE and they forced the Greeks back ultimately putting a large portion of Sicily under its rule while the Greek city-states paid for their lack of comradeship and decisiveness. This would lead to wars between the Carthaginians and the Syracusans, who were of Greek heritage, throughout the 4th century BCE for political dominance on the island. By the end of the 4th century BCE, this would actually spill over onto the North African coast itself, as Agathocles of Syracuse tried to prevent Carthaginian aggression by striking at its base at Carthage. Agathocles would defeat the Carthaginian army at the Battle of White Tunis outside Carthage, but he did not have the might to lay siege to the city itself and had to withdraw after a somewhat successful campaign that ensured that Syracuse would remain in control of the east of Sicily. Carthage had done enough of a job in the meantime to ensure that they remained the dominant force in Sicily. So the Sicilian Wars were now over and the world was entering the 3rd century BCE and this would mean the interference in affairs of Epirus. The Pyrrhic War Epirus was a Greek state which can be found on the modern map equivalent to the southern portion of the modern country of Albania and the Greek coastal territory directly to itself. You could describe it as the chunk of land opposite the island of Corfu. While Epirus was gaining status, the Roman Republic centred on Rome in the west coast of the Italian peninsula had also been gaining territory. This was all going on during the 4th century BCE. Going into the 3rd century BCE, and a notable king would emerge in Epirus, and his name was Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus was invited to support Greek city-states in Magna Graecia to assist in resisting Roman invasion, and it appears that Pyrrhus did not need to be asked twice as he harboured grand ambitions of creating his own massive empire 
and this would be a good excuse to claim territory. If Pyrrhus had imperial ambitions, then the Carthaginians on nearby Sicily would probably be best served to have their wits about them. Pyrrhus enjoyed victories over the Romans in the south of the Italian peninsula, but he really didn't have the resource to take Rome, so he just plundered what he could and then made a strategical decision in 278 BCE to attack the Carthaginians in Sicily. Now, despite there being a treaty between the Romans and the Carthaginians at this point, it does seem like neither party was prepared to become physically involved in each other's defence. Now, this may be because Rome and Carthage saw each other as a future threat to each other's interests, and it's the reason why they were happy to see the other party exhaust its resources battling against the Epirates but this may mean that the treaty was only a means to prevent Roman Carthage simply from attacking each other due to the Epirates being the greater threat, and certainly their victories against Romans attested this. Pyrrhus of Epirus would turn his attention to Sicily, and he would find success. The Carthaginians would try to prevent Pyrrhus entering Syracuse, but to no avail. Pyrrhus would occupy Syracuse and the Carthaginians would flee. The Carthaginians began to lose ground and support and Pyrrhus would press on, pushing the Carthaginians deeper and deeper back towards the west of Sicily. The Carthaginians would ultimately want to negotiate terms with Pyrrhus to prevent further losses, but Pyrrhus's ambition meant that he would settle for nothing short of Carthaginian expulsion from Sicily and he would decide that the best way to achieve this long-term goal would be to prepare for an invasion of Carthage itself. However, Pyrrhus's despotic attitude towards the Sicilians caused many to revolt against him and Pyrrhus decided that rather than pursue the ultimate defeat of the Carthaginians, that his energy would be better spent trying to defeat the Romans again. So he left Sicily and went back to the Italian peninsula. Pyrrhus would never return to Sicily. The Romans would ultimately defeat Pyrrhus at the Battle of Beneventum in 275 BCE and Pyrrhus would ultimately flee Italy and return back to Epirus. The Pyrrhic War was over, but it has left a kind of legacy that comes down to us in modern language. We talk of Pyrrhic victories, which are victories that come at such a high cost that they might as well be defeats. This refers directly to Pyrrhus's victories during the Pyrrhic Wars, because ultimately despite all of these fantastic victories over the Romans and the Carthaginians, Pyrrhus returned to Epirus with less than he came with. The victories were ultimately fruitless as he lost too much of his forces to be able to capitalise in any way whatsoever. In fact, the Romans would now be in control of the entire south of the Italian peninsula, something that had not been the case previously. This was now a new problem for the Carthaginians of Sicily as the Romans would now be likely to turn their attention to the potential conquest of Sicilian cities. 
the Sicilian city of Messana, was the closest city to the Italian mainland and it had been officially ceded to the Carthaginians way back in the 4th century BCE. However, Mamertine peoples had been unofficially occupying the city and now that the Carthaginians were interested in pushing the Mamertines out, the Mamertines appealed to the Romans for help and this would be the catalyst for the conflict between the Romans and the Carthaginians. It was in the year 264 BCE that the conflict between the Romans and the Carthaginians would begin and we call these conflicts the Punic Wars. The word Punic comes from the Latin word ponicus which is derived from the Greek word Phoenician. So the origins of the Carthaginians as Phoenicians comes down to us in the name of the Romans' wars against these peoples. What happened in the Punic Wars? Well, that is far too interesting to just put onto the end of a podcast. Therefore, we will devote a couple of episodes to the Punic Wars sometime during Volume 3. As for this podcast, we have covered an area of great historical significance in the last couple of podcasts when it comes to religion. So we are going to look more closely at the religious aspects of Canaan and Phoenicia in episode 10 before we attempt to summarise the ancient Near East in episode 11 before we take our first closer look at ancient Egypt starting from episode 12. Thank you very much for listening into this week's podcast and uh, we're now motoring along nicely in the ancient world so really starting to build up a good library of podcasts. I've had some contact this week, some people have sent me some emails. Colin Milburn uh, has put, uh, hey Chris, well done on the podcast, I very much enjoy listening. I started listening to history podcasts a short while ago, interested in the events leading up to World War One. We all know about the assassination that sparked it. But what about the lead up to that and the lead up to that and so on? So I searched for a podcast that would encompass man's journey from the very start. Your podcast delivers this wonderfully. Your hard work, research and delivery is very much appreciated. And Colin then goes on to talk about how it's hard to visualise timelines. So um, he uses a fine example of something I've, I've heard of before. It's like trying to visualise two million of anything. So if you've got two million marbles, what on earth does it look like? He's trying to say... How on earth can you visualise two million years ago? Uh, but what he's done is rather cleverly sent me a link to um, some timelines. So they're Finn Siver Nielsen's timelines and they're quite wonderful. Um, if you get the opportunity to go onto the social media pages, I've posted links to them on there on Facebook and on Twitter. So if you get the chance to look at those timelines, that can act very much like the maps do on the on the website blog that they do uh, help to illustrate in, a, in your mind's eye the periods of times that we're talking about and the, the kind of scope and, uh, and that kind of thing. It's very hard to visualise, but these timelines do help. So thank you ever so much, Colin. There's a very good resource that you've sent in. Well, one another thing that Colin sent in another one of his replies. So we did have a bit of an email exchange, and one of the one of the things that he sent to me, he said, "I'm sure you've got your hands full, but I'd love to know when humans and other humanoids began smoking." More properly asked, 
what early evidence there is, there are times in history where it's so popular and a form of important socialising. I find it a bit fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know too much about that. I mean, certainly I've seen the emergence of the first alcohols. I think um, you normally attribute that to the origins of agriculture and how we sort of uh, maybe. Uh, harvested barley and maybe left it into in a container somewhere where the rainwater got in and it started fermenting and suddenly we've got ourselves an alcoholic drink. Um, with smoking, maybe it was one of those things where someone was burning something and, and they were inhaling the fumes and uh, it gave them a funny feeling and they thought, well, hang on a minute, there must be some medicinal value in this there must be some spiritual um, effect that this is having on me most of the time you see that most of these things are put down to a spiritual feeling or spiritual occurrence so when they were feeling a bit dizzy if they were burning cannabis for example they're thinking oh this is great this is like some kind of spiritual interference or medicinal interference so that would be my guess but if you know any better then please do let me know, let me know if you know anything about the origins of smoking and we can like help Colin to understand and the rest of the History of the World podcast community. And we've had more contact from Joel McKinnon who um, introduced us to his audio drama podcast at planetandsky.com forward slash podcast. One of, the, uh, one of the things he mentioned in one of his emails, he's put, I really love the last few episodes... Um, including the two on megaliths and I had no idea there were so many and especially the one on the first towns as well I like how you spelled out the sequence of developments that inevitably result in a class-based society I love the ideals of an egalitarian equality for all value system in society but it's clear why it doesn't develop that way yeah it's it is interesting how we've sort of a lot of the things that we see as archaic, like uh, human attitudes maybe towards uh, females, towards homosexuality, uh, that kind of thing, is something that sort of developed within us. So it was like more acceptable um, in the past, in ancient times and in prehistory. People really didn't take a lot of notice of it. And then we've suddenly developed values um, at some point during our evolution that have um, made us have prejudices against certain types of people and certain types of behaviours. And it's uh, probably only now more recently that we're seeing the backlash of it now that we're in the 20, 20th and 21st centuries. quite incredible, really. So very good point being raised there, Joel. Thank you very much indeed. One thing that I did try to do um, on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website um, is... A bibliography so I've tried to list all of the books that I've used um, during the podcast plus ones that I've recommended during the course of the podcast so if you want to see what kind of reading material I'm getting the foundations for my work from uh, you will find that there's a lot there in terms of the bibliography so go there I'll try and update it whenever I, I introduce any new books into my library uh, for the podcast so uh, go and have a visit there. You can never have too many books. Thank you to all of you who rate and review the podcast. Um, it's not always obvious how much that helps uh, to promote the podcast. So, for example, if you 
review and rate us on iTunes. Uh, it can propel us up the charts and uh, make the podcast a lot more apparent to anyone visiting iTunes. And you can visit the iTunes website through the link on the History of the World podcast.com page. And then if you subsequently buy anything within the next hour, then I get um, I get a little bit of money for that. So don't forget to uh, buy from iTunes if you ever buy from iTunes by following my link I don't think it costs you anything and it certainly gives me a little a little bit on the side so which is always gratefully appreciated well I think that's about enough for another week I'm going to sign off now and let you get on with your lives again for another week uh, next time as I've suggested to you we're going to just look over to the religions of the Levant so it's a very very important time for that kind of thing. So I can't really leave the Near East without uh, having a, a brief discussion on those facts, the religions uh, of Canaan and Phoenicia, which is really um, where so much of the biblical texts refer to. So we're going to have a little deeper look at that. We're going to try and make it a little bit more um, sort of um, interesting than maybe it might be for some of you, like chronologies. Uh, we'll, as ever, we'll try and relate it to a lot of the things that were going on in the area. So it should be an extremely interesting and different podcast next week. So uh, look forward to linking up with you again next week and have a, a wonderful week. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.